Welcome back to Conversations Different, a podcast of the Santa Fe, New Mexican, focusing on the interesting people and issues of northern New Mexico. I'm Inez Russell Gomez, and today we are talking to New Mexico Senate Majority Leader Peter Wirth about the recently concluded legislative session. Welcome, Senator Wirth. Uh, thank you, Inez. Good to be here. Have you caught up on your sleep? I know those 30 days are a nightmare. I am just getting there. There is no question that it takes multiple days to recover just the change in sleeping pattern when you're on at the level I have to be on during that time period. Once you turn it off, the body just shuts down. So multiple naps a day, but coming out the other side. So I still have a smile on my face. Yes, you do. I was going to say, you look very rested. This should be a a video session so we can see that, you know, a week out, it's over and you're feeling better. Definitely out the other side, and I am feeling better. You know, when you kind of pause and realize what we were able to accomplish uh, during a 30-day session uh, in an election year with $3.5 billion of money and a few gun safety bills. I mean, <laughs> heading into that process. That's right, because everyone bans assault weapons, uh, whether they're gun-powered or gas-powered, uh, in an election year. That's what you want to do, right? That's right, in a 30-day session. But yeah. we managed to get through it. And yep. again, I, I'm feeling good about what we were able to accomplish. Yeah, I'm happy that I can go vote and not have to see somebody with a pistol strapped to their waist. I mean, that's that seems like such a no-brainer that one should not take a gun with them when they go vote. Yeah, you would think that that would be an easy one, but yeah. boy, it took a, a big effort to get it through both chambers, and in fact, it passed the House 35 to 34. Wow. And so that's all anyone needs to know when you look at the landscape that we have uh, in the Senate. We were able to move the two bills with better vote counts, uh, certainly in the in the newer Senate uh, with Governor Lujan Grisham when she first got here. Uh, we did background check and red flag and domestic violence, and those bills all passed 22 to 20. Right. So that took every ounce of everything I had to move votes at the last minute. Now you're seeing that in the House uh, yeah. more than in the Senate. Yeah, because, I mean, there's there's the whole idea there's Democrats and the Republicans, but the reality is there are some conservative Democrats. You know, they are going to be anti-abortion. They're going to be pro-gun. And you have to do a lot to get them to vote with you or maybe not vote at all. They could take a walk, you know, as happens sometimes. Yeah, it's challenging. And and again, lots of last minute amendments and concealed carry exceptions and things of that nature. But I will just say passing two gun safety bills uh, in a 30 day session, as we mentioned, uh, in this election year, I think is something we can be proud of. More work to be done for sure. But uh, I think, you know, the governor's hinted at a possible special session, and and certainly more gun bills would be uh, a real lift if that's what she's thinking. But right. we'll, we'll, well see. She's emphasizing, you know, she emphasized public safety, along with all the other four or five things she emphasized. But um, never let it say that she's not an ambitious person. But maybe considering that you can't get consensus, maybe everyone gets to go out and run their campaigns and and come back again next year. Well, and I think some of the things that she wants to do on public safety are really important, and I commend her. Look, look, she has pushed, and we need to be pushed. Uh, It's very easy to kind of stay in the status quo. 
Yes. And having done this now for 20 years, you see the pendulum swing. And so I, I appreciate what she's done. She's really focused on a couple of areas, though, that I do think need more work, which are civil and criminal commitments. And those are really tricky constitutional lanes. And, and we need to sit down and kind of figure out how to find the sweet spot in those. And so I, I, I'm hesitant to think that those could be part of a special session. But we'll wait and see what she's thinking after she takes these 20 days and she's working hard up there. I just was over at the Capitol and she's yeah. there working on bills and that's that's what she does in the 20 days and then we'll see where we are. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and one of the things about public safety is that perception and reality are always kind of lagging. Crime is actually going down again, but people don't feel that way. So they want someone to do something. And I always think it, it sounds boring, but what if you actually funded the court's to the level that they could try people and put them in jail or prison for a long time. You wouldn't have someone out on bail waiting two years to get tried. And and let me just say, Inez, one of the things that I am very uh, excited we were able to do is finally get the judges' salaries yes. up to a point where they're competitive uh, at the state level. Uh, that's something that uh, Senator Cervantes worked on for, for a number of sessions. We had vetoes, and this year we got that done. And you're absolutely right. I think that uh, when it comes to pretrial detention, and we spend a lot of time talking about that, uh, the reality is that the courts can do a lot just by having the judges enforcing the laws that are in place, having the resources to be able to move forward with those bills. And we did pass an, an interesting piece of legislation dealing with no bond holds. So if, if someone is released uh, with a felony conviction or a felony charge and then re-offends, re uh, it tells the court you've got to go back to the judges that were involved in the original, original decision, and that judge has got to make a determination of what happens next. It's, it you know, borders on criminal procedure, and I think the courts are also working on a rule to this effect. But you're absolutely correct that the courts can do an awful lot within their own lane. Yeah. And I think you're, you're seeing that happen, and we need to give them the resources to do it. And the other thing is if I get arrested for something and I have to wait in Bernalillo County Detention Center, that's a terrible place to wait. So you, you have a situation where people are actually overdosing or not getting medical treatment. And even if I'm charged, let's say, with a robbery with a gun, so that's a horrible crime and I could hurt somebody, uh, should I die waiting for my trial because there's not enough money or staff to run the jails? So there's just so many layers of this problem. And that's correct. And I think the key thing is the determination of dangerousness. Yeah. Before the constitutional amendment, you couldn't hold someone. Even if they were dangerous, they had a right to bond, and they right. would bond out if they had resources. So yeah. uh, I do think that the system is there, and it doesn't mean it can't work better, but I just think that it's it's the foundation that we're working from and moving forward. You're, you're correct. I mean, it's kind of the narrow constitutional window uh, because there is the biggest presumption of all, of course, is you're innocent until proven guilty. That's right, unless it's a federal crime, I guess, and then you have to prove it, then which I didn't realize until all of this started being discussed. And di yeah. different language in different constitutions, and, yes. and we have a presumption in our constitution. Right. So we spent so, a lot of time on that this session. Yeah, that makes sense. So it, it sounded like the federally you might be able to get away with it, but in New Mexico we have greater protections because our constitution is, is not necessarily kinder to criminals, but understands that innocent till proven guilty means innocent. Well, and it also puts the burden on the prosecutor to show by clear and convincing 
evidence that someone's dangerous. Right. And so part of what really kind of accelerated the whole discussion about pretrial release is that prosecutors were handling that in different ways. Right. And if they weren't doing their job, why should the legal system then keep people in jail just because the prosecutors couldn't do their job to say clear and convincing evidence? And and I think that's that's a good way to put it. And I, I just, I give the the current district attorney down in Bernalillo County, Sam Bregman, I give him kudos because yeah. he's actually putting the resources into going in front of the, the judges and showing that certain individuals are dangerous and should be held, and that's happening when that proof is met by clear and convincing evidence, which is the standard in our Constitution. Right. And on that, we will take a quick break and go back to discussing the recent legislative session. It's Inez Russell-Gomez and Conversations Different. Thanks, Inez. This is Patrick Dorsey, publisher of the Santa Fe New Mexican. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Conversations Different with Inez Russell Gomez. Great local content is only possible with a talented staff dedicated to bringing you the best local content possible. For that staff to do its work, we need your support by subscribing to the Santa Fe New Mexican. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. And if not, there's never been a better time to subscribe. In addition to our home-delivered newspaper that comes with full digital access, we also provide digital-only subscriptions for SantaFeNewMexican.com. We'll also be releasing more online-only audio and video programming moving forward. The Santa Fe New Mexican has been here for nearly 175 years, and we want to continue being your source for local news and information. Visit us at SantaFeNewMexican.com slash subscribe or call us at 505-986-3010. Thank you. It's a new day in New Mexico, and the doors to boundless opportunity are open as tens of thousands of New Mexicans reach higher to pursue a dream, broaden their horizons, and retrain for a better job. With the New Mexico Lottery and Opportunity Scholarships, you could build yourself a better future anywhere in the state. You put in the hard work, we'll help with the costs. For eligibility details, visit ReachHigherNM.com. Welcome back to Conversations Different. We are here with Majority Leader Senator Peter Wirth, who is a Santa Fe senator representing District 25. Now, you've been there for a while because you were representative before. Then you took office. You got elected in 2009 as senator. What are you doing this year? Because it's an election year. So I am definitely going to run again. And... uh, did something, you know, I have to collect petitions, and right. it's part of the process, and I uh, sent a letter out to constituents in Senate District 25 and was really overwhelmed with over a 1,000 petition signatures, sheets coming back full of signatures, Nice, which is great, because again, those are the folks that, you know, that I represent directly. And what's, what's interesting, Inez, is that, uh, again, in the position I have as the majority leader, you know, I'm kind of steering the ship as we navigate through the session and working with leadership and the governor, and you get focused on kind of higher level issues and don't always get right down to the district you represent. But the reality is I've got 50,000 amazing people here in Santa Fe who I get the chance to represent. And so, uh, again, I am going to come back and 
give it another another four year shot. Oh wow, you are a better person than than most of us because that that's a lot of work and you don't get paid. There is really very little support for our legislature. So I'm lucky that uh, that in the majority office I've now done it for eight years. I do have an amazing team of year round staff, and I can just say from again we're having that discussion about staffing and just seeing what a difference it makes to have folks that are able to take constituent calls and work through problems and kind of have that hands-on with state government that's needed sometimes coming from a different direction than just accessing through a department and and you get stuck in all the different bureaucratic levels and sometimes coming from our office from the top down we're able to get results so i'm lucky to have have that kind of staffing and Again, it's an interesting double life that I get to lead as a lawyer and and doing mediation work in my private practice. And then I like to see I like to say I get you know paid a lot of money to solve problems uh, outside of the legislature, and then I get paid nothing to come over and do exactly the same thing with 111 other <laughs> legislators and a governor, and and it just is completely chaotic. But at the end of it, somehow we navigate through, and we actually I think this session managed to have a session that we can be proud of. Do you think, you know, I think at the end you got some good results, things that you needed to get done that you wanted to get done. I mean, the budget got passed a couple of days early. You were meeting in committee the first Saturday. But is there a danger that everyone is submitting so many bills that you don't get the time to maybe focus where you need to? Have you guys talked about not constitutional rules, but internal rules to maybe control the massive legislation? Yeah, we have it. And it's, again, being there as long as I have. I remember 2006 and seven, we had a legislature structure and process task force right. done by the kind of a sitting legislators, former legislators, lobbyists run by the council service. We spent two years. We came up with all these recommendations, including potentially bill limitations, and they all went absolutely nowhere. Yes, yes. I tried, I tried to change the rule <laughs> to make p- things be printed on both sides of the page, and I couldn't get that passed. Well, just to save paper. Just to save paper. So it just shows how hard it is to effectuate change. There's a, there's a legitimate debate on both sides about limiting the number of bills. Mm-hmm. I have colleagues who feel that that takes away from their elected right to represent their constituents, and they want to carry lots of bills. Um, I will say we've gotten better. Good, uh, good. Back in the day, I can remember Senator Altamirano one year had over 100 pieces of legislation. Oh, my goodness. And Ben Lujan used to do the same thing. And so we've really tried to narrow it down, but there's still an awful lot going on. Well, especially today, it seems like you have some legislators, and I won't name names, who are performers as opposed to lawmakers. And those are the ones that are going to come up with, you know, impeachment death penalty, blah, 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 blah. And yet there they are, you know, they take up paper, they take up time. And, you know, just the, you have to analyze them at the beginning. So there's a lot of extra work, even if they don't get a hearing. So your resources are spread very thin. No, that's true. And it takes a lot of energy just focusing on and spending time working through some of those issues that are out there. But at the end of the day, I mean, again, thinking back on this particular session when we did have a whole string of bills, but 
even at the end, we did something different this session in terms of narrowing the number of, we call them now certificates. We're not doing memorials anymore. Uh-huh. We're doing certificates. We did just one or two a day for the first two and a half weeks and then really kind of reined that in. We also had a whole bunch of members leaving. Right, so right. we went through that process. But, you know, at the end of the day, I look at what was left on our calendar and there was only four or five bills. So we really made it through the whole process. And some of that is just the work that I do with the Senate Minority Leader, Greg Baca, and he and I communicate constantly nice. and try and put together the roadmap for the day. And you got to figure out when to push the gas and when to back off. And and I think as a result of that, we had a session that we can be proud of in terms of, you know, in this polarized no. political process, you look at what's happening on our floor. And I felt good about the way we present ourselves and navigate through even these most challenging issues. That was actually something that I thought I noticed is that even with, you know, the squawkers going at each other, um, there is definitely more bipartisanship than one would expect considering the atmosphere. And there were a lot of bills that wouldn't have happened if you guys hadn't worked together, you know, to listen to the minority and make some concessions to get some support. So it wasn't just everything the Democrats are in charge and they can just pass it on a party line vote. I mean, there was some of that, but not as much as one might think. No, I think that's a good observation. And the rules are there to protect the minority. And one of the things that the big mistake you can make when you're in a leadership position is thinking that, oh, well, I've got I've got the vote so I can just go roll the other side. And so I think this session we had one call of the Senate, which for your listeners is when they lock the doors and we can't do anything until all 42 of us are in our chairs. Uh, And it was actually on the polling places bill, just they wanted to make sure Democrats and swing districts were in their chair taking a vote. Right. Got to be on the record. That's it, on the record, which is what you should do with a call. But a couple of years ago, you might remember that I was carrying the election bill And the call of the Senate then was used. They had a member who had left the session. And so they were able to completely shut down a piece of legislation by not having everybody there, everyone there. So trying to avoid that whole scene and just discuss what we're going to do, when we're going to do it. That's something that I spend a lot of time doing with Senator Baca and his team. And there's only 15 Republicans and we're 27 Democrats, but... The fact is our chamber really works collaboratively. And if you watch the end of the the, the kind of final wind down the last three hours on, on Thursday morning, it's all pretty coordinated. We know what's going to happen, which bills are going to get heard, and when Senator Scherer is going to stop his filibuster. <laughs> I was going to say, but but does anyone control Senator Scherer? <laughs> well, I, this session, I actually got to take the little yellow note back to him and said, it's time. So oh. and, and he stopped. But that's all the result of that kind of Working work that to- happens together. And yeah. so... Now, in the House, it was very interesting that one of the biggest Democratic priorities, paid family medical leave, lost because 11 Democrats sided with the Republicans. And it might be that as a result, we're going to get a better bill for everybody next time. You know, all of those things could happen. But that's kind of a wake-up call that you could get into coalition politics 
you know, there could be divisive primaries along the Democratic side, maybe. I don't know. What did, what did you think watching, you know, from your perch in the Senate? Well, and it's funny because my perch in the Senate has changed a bunch in the time I've been in the Senate. We, mm-hmm. of course, were, were run by a coalition of right. conservative Democrats and Republicans. Yes. And, you know, the coalition form of government is very good at maintaining status quo. Yes. And when you push, um, you know, that's when there's a pushback and you saw that happen in the House. I give the Speaker of the House, Javier Martinez, huge kudos for putting that bill on the floor. Um, so it wasn't, a, he didn't, he knew the count probably he wanted to get it on the record perhaps? Yeah, or it's a, Yeah, it's a good question as to what exactly he knows. I don't know the answer to that. No. I've not talked to him about exactly what he knows, but... I've always in the Senate been willing to put bills on the floor, even if I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, because sometimes that helps move the process forward. A perfect example uh, is the end-of-life legislation that we finally were able to pass. The first time I put that on the floor, uh, Senator Stevanix, I think, was shocked because we hadn't really talked about it, and it came within one or two votes of passing, and that developed the momentum that eventually got that over the hurdle. So uh, again, it's tough decisions, uh, how you deal with things. And what I'm thankful for is we didn't have more amendments, meaning it would have come back to the Senate, where I think we would have then shut down, most likely. Uh, So we were able to get that bill through the Senate for the second year in a row. And this is the first time there was a, a vote on the House floor. And I do think it's a step in the right direction. Concessions were made, and there's clearly more work that needs to be done. Uh, but also a big election cycle in between. Right. And we'll take a quick break and be back with a few more minutes with Senator Peter Worth. My name is Maria Jose Rodriguez Cadiz, and I am the Executive Director with Solace Sexual Assault Services. Our mission is to prevent sexual violence and empower survivors of sexual violence through restoring dignity, strength, and resiliency. For almost 51 years, Solace has reduced the impact of sexual violence. We do it by focusing on human rights, social justice, hope, and dignity. We believe survivors are experts in their own experiences and acknowledge that empowering them is crucial to their healing. Our advocacy, forensic interviewing, and therapy services are centered to their needs. Our sexual violence prevention programs in schools and community is just as important. Please check our website at findsolace.org. And if in need, you can call our 24-7 hotline, which is 800-721-7273. Your support is crucial to the lives of survivors. Thank you. Gracias. We're back with Senate Majority Leader Peter Wirth. Um, one question that I thought is kind of non-legislative related, but does deal with state government. There is a proposal to build a big office building uh, in the Galisteo area by the Roundhouse. And you rightly pointed out to me that there's a process that has to be gone through, which evidently they, the state didn't quite 
do yet. Um, what is going to happen, do you think, with that? Yeah, it's a great question. And my mom asked me the same thing yesterday. So I guess <laughs> you're on the same page with her. And it's there's a whole history there. Of course, my grandfather, when they were building the Capitol, the same thing happened. The design was just unbelievable. I've actually seen the plans that were proposed. Tom Taylor, yeah. former representative, his dad had been involved somehow. And I remember looking at that and and my grandfather was brought in to kind of redesign that in the 60s after he had retired. And, and he wrote this incredible piece for the Santa Fe New Mexican, a magazine that we had called Viva, about what it was like and what needed to happen. So for those of you who don't know, his grandpa is John Gamim, who's the architect basically of Santa Fe to some degree. And then yeah. interesting, in, in 2007 and eight, when I was in the house, uh, Speaker Ben Lujan put me on the small little committee that was designing that big parking lot across the street and right near where this new building's proposed. And initially, that was just going to be a five-story mall-type parking lot. And we brought in the historic preservation community, I think Rad Acton, architect okay. here in town. And as a result, you saw a complete change of the design so that it made it much more kind of fitting into the character of the Capitol complex. And then Speaker Lujan carried a bill in 2009, my first year in the Senate, I, I was the sponsor in the Senate, that put in place a process. So it, it's a process where the, it requires collaboration with the Historic Design Board. Uh, it doesn't have the same level of veto that exists for someone in the city going in front of the H board, but it does require that kind of collaboration. And I think that certainly one of the questions I have is, and you mentioned it, the extent to which that has happened. Um, this is a building that will be in between the parking lot and the Baton building. So right. it's, it's in where the Concha Ortiz uh, building is now. I think that would come down in the three little houses that are there. So I do think after... Uh, I appreciate your question, and when my yeah. mom started asking me what's going on, I think I need to reinsert myself a little bit and just see if we can't figure out how to yeah. kind of get the best of both worlds. And the question I had, and I, we've got to go talk to the state people, is, you know, is that a really necessary building for one thing? And if so, would it be better placed by the rail runner? And you know, do you want Santa Fe downtown to become completely a bunch of government buildings? And what does it do to my drive to work, which is the most important question, because I go that way every day. And I'm like, I don't know how many cars are going to be on that road. You know? Well, I, I think one of the things that I've heard the same thing about the rail runner, I will say that we have a ton of employees that now take the rail runner and they walk over to the Capitol. Right. So right. I do think it's pretty close. Uh, Right now, the state is leasing a whole bunch of private office space uh, in town. And for example, the uh, Secretary of State, uh, who's currently in the annex, right. uh, potentially would move into this new space. So there's a whole space issue and what right. makes sense there. And this has been in the works for quite a while. Well, I was doing the 1999 histories, uh, which I do the 100 years ago today. And there's actually a discussion of a big building being proposed to consolidate. And one of the realtors in town saying that's going to kill private buildings office space in Santa Fe, because so many state buildings are renting offices. So again, it's these layers of complexity. Yes, you want to save taxpayer dollars, own the building. But do you want to decimate the economy 
because all the other buildings will be empty. And how do you balance that? And do you want to have elected state officers like the auditor? I can remember visiting Hector Balderas in his little tiny rented space off of St. Michael's Drive. Right, right. Not part of the complex. So we've got to balance all of that. And if and again, I, I think this project is moving forward. And then the question becomes, okay, how do you put in place a building that can fit with what's there? Right. Parking lot being an example of one that I think works as is the Capitol, all of that is a very large building when you see how tall it is and, yeah. and again, finding that, that balance. Well, the beauty of the Capitol is after it went through the mediation process and got switched around, it became iconic despite being different. You know, it was round, it was kind of territorial, not Pueblo. You know, all the things they did, it was uh, – I got to go to the grand opening when I was a little girl, and it was a very – memorable experience. And I still, every time I go in there, I just think about, you know, how cool it is that it's not like everything else. It's very different. And I still, I still walk in circles. Yes. Even to this day, 20 years later, you look, where's the Buffalo? How do I get, you know, going which direction? But it's, it's an amazing building and super proud to be in that building and having that be the epicenter of our government. And as we figure out though, how to have the state capital be part of the historic fabric of our community, I think the discussion about new buildings is one that we have to kind of take step by step and follow that process that Speaker Lujan put in place. That's right. And and do you destroy the three houses that are kind of the old middle class of Santa Fe? I mean, I think the Historic Society has a list of people who live there as a reason they should be saved. And maybe And maybe that's not a good enough reason. We'll see how it all plays out. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. I just encourage folks to stay involved. Yes. Because again, just like my mom, everyone needs to remember all the history and, and how as, as we change, we do it in a way that, that works within yeah. our community. Yeah. One thing I always think about is my favorite buildings in Santa Fe are nonconforming because the cathedral and the pink Scottish Rite Temple, they would not pass our current rules. So we have to keep that in mind as, as we consider the future. Exactly right. No, yeah. it's, it's an amazing it's an amazing place that we live, but it's it's got its challenges, especially when you put a state government right in the middle of a historic district. That's right. And on that note, we will say goodbye to Majority Leader Senator Peter Worth, and uh, good luck on your campaign. And uh, let's see if you get an opponent, and I have to interview both of you. There we go. Look forward to not getting an opponent, but doing an interview always with you, Inez. Appreciate right. it. Thank you. This has been another Conversations Different. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts.